Bibles, if you would please, and open them to Matthew chapter 7. I want you to stand with me, please. We're going to get right into the text today. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 15. Uh, For the past three weeks, we've been looking at the closing remarks of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus finished his last major point with verse number 12, and then he gave an exhortation for his listeners to respond to the message by getting off of the broad path that leads to destruction and onto the narrow path that leads to life. And then in these verses, 15 through 20, he speaks of false prophets that would try to deceive them. The religious leaders were the scribes and the Pharisees, and they were wolves in sheep's clothing, and they would never lead them to eternal life. So if you look, please, in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word today. Lord, speak to our hearts and help us to learn what you would have us to know from these scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We've had the opportunity in these past three weeks to look at this particular portion of scripture from both the Old and the New Testaments. And in the Old Testament, Israel was plagued with false prophets that claimed to speak for God, and they led the people into some of the worst sins that are imaginable. The nation of Israel was formed at the foot of Mount Sinai, and this is when God gave them a righteous law. God told them that he wanted them to walk in this law. There was a system of sacrifices and commandments, and these pointed out that Jehovah is the only true God. He's the one God, and in him was where they would find their hope and their deliverance from sin and life eternal. Before entering into the promised land, God gave the people a warning. He said that there would be false prophets that would come. They would claim that they were speaking for him, but they were actually rebels against God's word. They wouldn't keep the commandments. They would lead them into a path of idolatry. And as we read throughout the Old Testament, we find these many different examples where false prophets were teaching the people and did lead them into some terrible sins. Israel often believed their lies. And the end of those lies was exactly as God said it that it would be. Eventually, Israel lost their freedom. They lost their temple. The walls of the city of Jerusalem were torn down, and they went into captivity. And we come to the New Testament times, and we find that the Israelites, the Jews, were back in the land. They uh, had the city walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. The temple had been made into a magnificent complex by the Roman government. But there was a huge problem. And that was the false prophets. They ruled the religious system of the time. Now, they still had the Old Testament law, but what they had done was they had perverted God's law, and they were teaching that it was possible for a man to be justified by keeping the law, keeping all of these commandments. And they reasoned that if ten commandments were good, then 500 commandments must be better. And so they perverted the old ones that they had, and then they added a whole new list of commandments, things that they could keep, 
And then they declared themselves righteous in the eyes of God. And this false system was so pervasive that a true believer in Israel was, as Grandma used to say, as scarce as hen's teeth. And there's a southern expression for you. When this crowd gathered on the shores of Galilee and Jesus began to preach to them, he showed them the real meaning of God's law, the real intent of it, and he showed them that their religious leaders had duped them into following a mixed-up, convoluted perversion of God's holy commandments. The real intent of the law has always been this, that it would point people or point out their sins, that it would make us realize that it's impossible for us to keep God's law perfectly. And that is exactly what a just and holy God demands. He demands that his law must be kept perfectly. And so the intent of the law has always been this, that it would drive us to the realization of the impossibility of keeping this law. We must have someone to do this for us. It's impossible for us to be righteous in God's eyes on our own. And so uh, the law then intended that these people would see their hopelessness, that they would be pointed to Jesus as the only way that they could have their sins forgiven. And so we have this exhortation that's given in verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And then immediately after that exhortation, Jesus says, Some people... False prophets will try to throw you off of the right way. They'll bring you a message with false hope. They'll bring you the wrong message. And if you follow them, you are going to end up in exactly the same place where they're going. You're going to follow them into the destruction of hell. Now you see, when Jesus preached this message, it didn't mean that the scribes and the Pharisees were going to give up. They wouldn't say, well, now we're exposed. Jesus has showed the people what we really are. We are the wolves in sheep's clothing. And so we might as well give up. We've been exposed. They weren't going to do that. These people, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders. They they were the ones that were uh, telling the people what they should do. They were entrenched in this false religion, and they weren't going to give up easily. And that's because they were receiving their instructions from their father, the devil. And the devil never gives up easily. So Jesus couldn't end this message. He couldn't just say, well, good luck. I hope that you'll do well now because you know the truth and no one's going to bother you. Not on your life. This message would stir up the devil It would cause the demons of hell to go on the attack. And so right after he gave this exhortation, he began a series of warnings. And the theme that we find all the way down through the end of the Sermon on the Mount in verse 27 is the theme that makes sure you are on the right way. Make sure that you have not been deceived by a false prophet who preaches a false gospel. And so these verses introduce that thought. Verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets. And the warning is not just for them. We have these words preserved in the Bible for us. 2,000 years of church history has not done away with this kind of demonic activity. It's, it's had an explosion with the uh, spread of the gospel around the world. False teaching is prevalent. It's pervasive throughout the world. It's everywhere that you go. There are all of these false prophets that counterfeit and deceive. And so Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Why? Well, first of all, we looked at this, that a false prophet is dangerous. 
And we covered that, uh, these first few points in the earlier messages, so I have to refer you back to them for further explanation. But a, a false prophet is dangerous because he looks like the real thing. He stands in a pulpit, he, he talks like a true preacher, he claims that he's speaking for God, but he doesn't teach the truth of the gospel of salvation. He's a counterfeit, and he'll lead your soul into hell. Then we also discussed how a false prophet has a disguise. He comes in sheep's clothing. False prophet doesn't announce to you that he is a false teacher. He doesn't say, I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing. He never discloses his intentions. Just like a shepherd in Jesus' time would would wear the clothing of a sheep, uh, a coat made out of wool, so this false prophet wears the mask of a good pastor. He looks the part. He speaks the part. He makes all the right moves. He gets a following. He captivates people. So they listen to every word that he says and follow follow everywhere that he goes. And the disguise is good enough that false teachers and false churches dot the landscape within just a few hundred yards of our very own church, or at the most, just a few blocks. Now, thirdly, we learn that a false prophet will not disturb you. He'll not preach a message that stirs your soul to utter helplessness. He'll not call you a vile, wicked sinner in need of God's grace. He'll say nothing at all about a path so narrow, the path that you have to walk uh, to find in the gate that is so narrow that you probably already missed it. He's not going to tell you that. He doesn't bring any non-disturbing doctrines. And so he won't disturb you from preaching from the Bible. Sometimes they never even open a Bible. Most of the time, the people that go to those churches don't bring a Bible because they figure, why should I? Who needs one? The pastor, the teacher, he doesn't bring a Bible, so why do I? Or why do I need to? And the message that these people preach is certainly more modern than the message that Peter and Paul preached because they'll tell you that the Bible's not relevant today. It's an old-time message that you really don't need to listen to. There are other things. There are better ways. There's a different way that we can go. And so they don't preach about holiness. They don't start with the holiness of God and how that man has sinned against God. They love to preach on the love of God, but they don't teach that God's love is actually grounded in his chief attribute, which is holiness. So God loves the truth, God loves justice, God loves grace, but all of that is rooted in God's holiness, never divorced from his holiness. And so since they're unconcerned about holiness, they're naturally unconcerned with God's wrath. And so they don't preach about hell because they never believe that God would be upset enough to actually send anybody there. And so, if they don't open a Bible, you don't preach about sin, if you don't emphatically teach that God deserves to be glorified because he is God, because he is holy, then you won't preach on hell. But God said, be holy as I am holy. And so what are the consequences if you're not? Well, apparently there are none because these churches have done away with all the consequences. Jesus said that the broad way is destruction. But the false prophet says, don't worry about that. Come as you are. Stay as you are. Bring all your baggage. Bring all of your sins. There aren't any demands. So we'll just sit here and we'll talk about peace, love, and harmony. And that is the devil's doctrine. And that's what Jesus warns about. Folks, we need a Savior. There's something to be saved from. And they don't preach that Christ is a Savior because they'd rather look at him as your buddy. 
Christ is your friend. He never gets angry about anything. So you don't actually need to be saved. You need to be a community activist. You need, to be to, you need to be a social warrior. You need to march for the rights of all people and the tolerance of all lifestyles. That's what Christianity is. But that's nothing but the message of a false prophet. And he's not going to disturb your way of life. He'll always tell you, you're going to make it. And so they smile and they bring a sweet positive message. Always a positive message because the world has too much sadness and we don't want to get people too upset. So those are the very ones that Jesus warns about. And the false message comes in a variety of forms. There may be a little bit of diversity in their doctrine, but they all have one thing in common. The broad path. They're all on the broad path. It's not restrictive. It's not difficult. It'll never disturb you enough to cause any terror in your soul. You'll never fear God. They don't want you to feel too badly because the wolf wants you to think, that you are protected and you are safe. Well, I need to move on because we've got some more ground to cover. Uh, Thus far, I've dealt mostly with the warnings and the, the prophet in sheep's clothing, deceptiveness and that. They are deceptive, the Word of God says, but the Word of God also teaches that they can be found out. So a false prophet can be detected. In verse 16, he says, "...ye know them by their fruits." Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. So they can be detected. You can tell them by their fruits. Now, before we explore that thought just a little bit further, let me say that you can't detect them if you don't know what to look for. Do you think that there are so many people in the world deceived today because they're good Bible reading and good Bible studying Christian people? I mean, do you think that they are deceived uh, because they read the Bible a lot and because they study and because they pray and all of that? How can you spot a false teacher? And I don't care if, if it's me preaching to you, if it's, your, if it's your favorite evangelist, if it's the guy that has 10,000 people that come to church or one that meets in a storefront with only 12 chairs. The thing that you have to do, if he claims to speak to, for God, you have to go to the place where God speaks. And you have to find out what did God say and is he telling you the truth. And what do I mean by that? You start with the Bible in your hands. You start by reading the Word of God. You follow what he says and see if what he says can be proved by the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul, as learned as he was, as gifted as he was, he was a man who had the Holy Spirit speak directly to him. He wrote inspired words of Scripture, and yet when he went to the city of Berea, they checked him out. They looked at the Bible, they looked at the Scriptures, and they determined, is he telling us the truth? And so if you're going to detect a false teacher, the best method is to know the truth. But as we know, that's not the case with all people because most people don't even have a clue what truth is. They haven't read the Bible. They started out in the very beginning following someone who didn't use very much Bible. So they're not trained in it. They haven't done any personal study. And Jesus says, if you're going to find out about them, you've got to look at their fruits. You've got to see what's in their lives, what comes out of that. A preacher of the truth or a preacher of non-truth is always tried by the fruits of the Spirit. There is a biblical test. And if they fail that test, 
then there are false teachers. Now, I've already given you some of the ways that you detect them. If you're never disturbed by doctrines like the doctrine of sin and hell and holiness and salvation, it's pretty safe that you have detected a false teacher in the pulpit. But these guys have other characteristics as well. And we're going to go a little bit further and talk about some other ways, some things that you can look for that help you to detect a false prophet. An appalling preacher has a method about him, and one of those methods is that you need to watch out for emotionalism. Watch out for emotionalism. And be careful when a preacher tries to take you in by playing with your emotions. Now, humans are emotional creatures, and if somebody can manipulate your emotions, then they can steer you in the way that they want you to go. Did you know that the apostles never once ask a convert, how do you feel? Now that you're saved? You know, if you ask me how I feel, some days I don't really feel so good. I'm tempted to sin just like you are, and sometimes when I give in to sin, I don't feel so much like I'm saved. But I can't base my salvation on my feelings because my feelings rise and fall like a roller coaster. I can't follow that. Salvation is not based on my feelings. Salvation is based on objective truth. My salvation is in Jesus Christ and the work that he did for me on the cross. And I trust that what he did on the cross paid the penalty of my sins and that he was raised again for my justification. And so it's objective truth that I believe, and I believe that because the Holy Spirit worked in my heart. He opened up my eyes to the gospel of Christ. He showed me my inability to do anything about my sin. And so I trusted Christ to do something for me. And so some days when I think about that, I'd like to do backflips. But I try, and my hip goes out, and now I don't feel so good anymore. So you have to watch out for preachers that want to lead you on an emotional high. And I I don't have time today to go into the wretched doctrine of the charismatics that teach people that you can speak in tongues, and they have meetings with people jumping up and down and dancing in the aisles and laughing hysterically. They tell you if you don't do those things, then you don't have the Holy Spirit. But having the Holy Spirit has nothing at all to do with any outburst. You might not ever cry. You might never ever raise your voice above a whisper. You may never speak anything but your own native tongue and something that you've learned by going to school. So don't be fooled by emotions. Emotions have nothing to do with salvation. So today you can climb on the chairs and you can jump off the basketball hoops if you want to, but that has nothing to do with whether you are saved or not. So salvation is not an emotional feeling. So watch out for those that are continually trying to manipulate your emotions. Now there's another thing that we need to look out for, and this one is really pervasive in the church today, and that is you need to watch out for entertainment. Entertainment has become the preferred method of evangelism in churches today. This past Easter, the Saddleback Church in the L.A. area rented out the Angel Stadium, and the main attraction for the Easter service was the Jonas Brothers singing a tune from a Disney movie. Now, perhaps you you didn't know about Saddleback Church, but that is the original purpose-driven church. Now, here's here's a comment from a newspaper article about the Easter service at the Purpose Driven Church and the appearance of the Jonas Brothers. Jenna Slip, 18 of Tustin, screamed when she found out they were going to be a part of the service. She screamed even louder as they walked out on the field past third base. It was great to see them live, she said, clutching her boyfriend Anthony Trent's hand. They were heartfelt. 
Normally, they're really upbeat. But today, they were mellower, more respectful for the occasion. Well, thank God they were more respectful of the occasion. I mean, a resurrection is kind of serious, don't you think? You've got to watch out for the entertaining church. I mean, they draw people in with rock bands and a party atmosphere. I mean, you heard me tell the story before about the Baptist church that I... Baptist church that I visited in Florida and they had girls on the stage in miniskirts that were dancing and they had uh, a smoke machine in the back they had strobe lights that were going off and in the back of the auditorium there was a little cafe where you got your latte and you sipped that while you watched the show now some of that stuff seems kind of amusing to us but that's what's taken over churches today The book, The Purpose Driven Church, has sold millions of copies. You know how it started out? It started out with a survey of the neighborhood to see what people who don't go to church would go to church if you changed things so they would. So what do you think that they would say? Well, they would say, make church like my environment. Make church what I'm used to. Make church the things that I like to do. Put me in my natural habitat. And so what they've done, these churches have Christianized American Idol and Dancing with the Stars. And at the end, if possible, if they have time, then they slip in a little feel-good message that may have something about Christ or who they call Christ. A.W. Tozier wrote, this was back in 1955. This was before Rick Warren and the Jonas Brothers uh, combo. He said, For centuries, the church stood solidly against every form of worldly entertainment, recognizing it for what it was, a device for wasting time, a refuge from the disturbing voice of conscience, a scheme to divert attention from moral accountability. For this, she got herself abused roundly by the sons of the world. But of late, she has become tired of the abuse and has given over the struggle. She appears to have decided that if she cannot conquer the great God entertainment, she may as well join forces with him and make what she can of his powers. So today we have the astonishing spectacle of millions of dollars being poured into the unholy job of providing earthly entertainment for the so-called sons of heaven. Religious entertainment is in many places rapidly crowding out the serious things of God. Many churches these days have become little more than poor theaters where fifth-rate producers peddle their shoddy wares with the full approval of evangelical leaders who can even quote a holy text in defense of their delinquency. And hardly a man dares raise a voice against it. That was 1955. What do you think has happened today? Folks, do you think that Jesus was an entertainer? Do you think that his preaching was a crowd-pleaser? Before he was through, with three years of ministry, the crowds that came to see the miracles and all those things that he did had been preached to. And they were preached to with the hard, hard, cold reality of their sins and how they had been rejected by God. And when that preaching was over with, the multitudes became minuscule numbers of people. And then they finally fled from him, all fled, and they crucified him for what he preached. Jesus never preached a feel-good message. When I first came to California, I visited many different churches and I was looking for someone who was still preaching the old-time gospel in an old-time way. So I attended a Baptist church in Vallejo. And the first part of the service was a, was a skit with a kindergarten moral object lesson. So this is what you do. You give people theater. You give them something visual. Give them something so they don't have to think too hard. And so preachers tell stories 
They have little dramas to demonstrate their inane little moral lessons. And I can see the Apostle Paul right now with that kind of method, walking into a synagogue with critical Jews and saying, ta-da, showtime. And folks, it's really not much better in so-called Bible-believing fundamental churches. You throw out the half-hour illustrations and the tear-jerking stories and you take out the jokes and what do you have left? What you have left is not much Bible. You don't have much scripture. You don't have much truth that's actually left. Now, as I say this, I've been around. I've seen this stuff. We went to a conference um, a few years ago where nearly the entire message of one of the main speakers was a comedy routine about a waste sewage tank blowing up on his camper. Was that interesting and funny? Well, it was the way he described it. Did he hold people's attention? Absolutely, he held their attention. Everybody was laughing along as they heard the story being told. But you know the lasting legacy of his sermon? The thing that I remember was the waste sewage tank blowing up and nothing else. See, the style of preaching has changed in the last 100 to 150 years. Why? Well, it's the outgrowth of an abandonment of biblical doctrine and in its place has been put things that entertain. No longer do we think about the glory of God, but what has been substituted is a feel-good message where man is actually the primary interest. We forgot about who God is. Now we're concentrate on, concentrating on men and who they are. So all that we preach is not to the glory of God, but to fill us up. So this emotional, entertaining style of preaching is now the norm. And that's how people think you're supposed to preach. If you don't preach that way, then what happened to you? What did you get? And so coming out of our colleges today is that type of preaching. Fill it up with stories and illustrations. Fill it up with all of that. And give them that little bit of a feel-good message. Give them the jokes. And that's what people actually do remember. So they put on the show. But folks, if the primary interest, if the only interest of the preacher that you're listening to is not the glory of God. If he's not preaching that from the pulpit, then you've just found a false prophet in the pulpit. Now, there's another thing that you need to watch out for. You need to watch out for corruption. Corruption has hit the church. I have a couple of issues I want to talk to you about here. First would be the overt corruption of greed. So you need to watch out for health, wealth, and prosperity preaching. I've talked about this a lot because it's prevalent in churches today. The TV ministries especially are rife with corruption. They're preaching a gospel of wealth. And it's not a new problem. I mean, it's a very old problem. It's been going on since the apostles. But somebody discovered how to really jack that up and really get it going. And the easy ability to rake in these these kinds of dollars that are taken in by TV ministries has actually infiltrated even the local churches. And so you hear the same thing being preached in pulpits all over the area where we are. Did you know that the Bible places as one qualification, main qualification for a pastor, is that he must not be infatuated with wealth. Paul said in Titus 1 verse 7, for a bishop, that is a pastor, must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. 
Peter said in 1 Peter 5, verse 2, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Well, should a pastor be well taken care of? Well, I think the Bible teaches that. We looked at that a few weeks ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I believe that a pastor ought to be well taken care of, or taken care of well enough that he doesn't have to take his time away from his main objective of preaching the Word of God and studying that in order to figure out how he's going to pay his bills. But there is no excuse for what we see going on in churches today, in ministries today. I mean, can you ever find where the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel was preached throughout the history of the church? Where do you find that until you come to the likes of Oral Roberts and Kenneth Copeland and T.D. Jakes and Creflo Dollar and Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn and all of that bunch? You don't find it in the Bible. You don't find it in Christian history. It has no place there. And it didn't become popular until somebody discovered that a preacher can actually feed on the greed of the people. He learns how to feed on their greed. So what he does, he promises incredible returns for your investment in the kingdom of God. And then they sit back and they rake in the dough. And if you don't get a return on your investment, then they tell you, well, you just didn't have enough faith. And so they repeat the cycle. Show greater faith. Send in more money. It's a great scheme. And and he keeps getting rich. But folks, it is the broad way. It has broad way written all over it. The preacher gets richer and richer and, sk- richer and skates off with the money. He has diamond rings and gold-plated cars and corporate jets. Benny Hinn stays in $10,000 night hotel rooms. Pat Robertson has up to a billion-dollar empire. The close associate of his that used to travel with him on his corporate jet, and he said everywhere we were flying... Uh, Robertson never opened up a Bible, but he always had he always had the Wall Street Journal, Journal and Investors Daily. That's what he was reading. Jesus talked about those types in John chapter 10. He spoke of himself as the good shepherd. Then he talked about wolves in sheep's clothing. And he talked about people that are in religion for prophets. And he said, uh, prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S, prophets, money. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. And the hireling fleeth because he is a hireling and careth not for the sheep. The hireling flees. Do you think for a moment that that rich TV preacher cares anything at all about your soul? You just wait. I mean, what would happen if the source of the funds dried up? He wouldn't stay around for 10 minutes. Now, there's one named uh, Robert Tilton, who used to have a television program. He got exposed, but he's still hanging around on the Internet. At one time in the early 90s, he was taking in $80 million a year. People would send in their donations with their prayer requests, and Robert Tilton's helpers were taking the money out of the envelopes and the checks out of the envelopes and throwing the prayer request in the dumpster. A dead giveaway for a false prophet is his corruption. What does he teach about money and how does he live? But I'm going to end today by speaking of another type of corruption. And this is not greed because many of these preachers have very little to their name. And these are preachers with gimmicks. Watch out for gimmicks. Now here 
are preachers that have no ethical standards when it comes to the gospel. The ethics are always ruled by the results. And if they tell a lie for the good of the ministry or what they call the good of the ministry, that's okay. They have their own ethical standard. Souls, one for Jesus. That's the thing that counts. So if you have to lie from the pulpit, that's okay. And and let me just mention something. I I, I want to tell you specifically what I'm talking about here. But when a preacher stands up and brings you all of these illustrations and all these gut-wrenching things and acts as if he actually lived through them and did them and, and pretends that they're his, that's a lie. That You can't tell lies and be a preacher of God's word. But let me go on here. Let me read you an account of a person who encountered a lying evangelist. And before I read this, I want you to rule out, rule out preachers and evangelists that correctly depend upon the Holy Spirit and they are very sincere when they give invitations. But he begins this way. Today's evangelists are unlikely to be given a pass if they seek to accomplish the expansion of the kingdom through adultery. There is, however, one sin which is always forgiven. Evangelists may always lie. Any lie is justifiable when it's told for the sake of winning the loss to Christ. I grew up in a Reformed enclave, isolated from the shenanigans of modern evangelists, so I could never forget the first altar call I ever saw. Right after he told everyone, that is the evangelist, right after he told everyone to bow his head and close his eyes, I didn't, he told a lie. I'm not going to ask you to come up front. It wasn't just a lie, it was a dumb lie. Even I could tell the only reason he said it was because he was going to start asking people to come up front. Having told one lie, the evangelist got on a roll. He said he just wanted people to raise their hands so he could pray for them. I saw in that crowded church a sea of heads bowed while the preacher began to call out, you over there on the right, I'm praying for you. And you sister down here in front, I'm praying for you except no one, and I do mean no one, was raising his hand. The man couldn't stop lying. And of course, as soon as everyone was convinced that he wouldn't be the first to raise his hand, hands started flying up all over the room. Then he made those poor deluded people come up to the front. The man lied, didn't he? Broke a commandment? Did what even our smallest children know to be a major sin? It seems so to me, and it ought to seem so to every Christian. Yet it does not. Within the evangelical culture, what he did was perfectly understandable. He got people to the front of the church. And numbers, that's what matters. Friends, it is wrong to manipulate people with a gimmick. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts people of sin. He moves people to come to Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes the heart. And if a person's heart has not been changed, then I certainly do not want to manipulate them to do anything. If the message that's preached from God's word does not convict a sinner, then I sure do not want to be the one who's responsible for it. You see, and you get into a service and you start to feel all woozy and antsy and emotions take hold of you and all the manipulations start to take hold. Do you think that that was a true commitment? That it wouldn't last at least a week? Wouldn't it last at least one week if the Holy Spirit has really convicted someone and convinced them that they needed to be saved? Does the Holy Spirit turn loose of people that he convicts for salvation? Folks, if you're truly convicted, you return and you return and you return until you actually do surrender and you make a profession of Christ and you make that known. And then you know what you do after that? You follow the Lord in baptism. You obey him in baptism if you've been really convicted and really saved. 
what conviction is good that leaves you short of repentance and faith and then continued obedience in Christ's command? And yet that's what we hear preached all the time. Go out and win them, win them, win them. Well, of course, win the lost to Christ. Win the lost. Preach to them. But if they don't show any evidence they've actually received Christ and they don't come to a church and don't hear the message preached and they refuse to be baptized, they don't want that part of it. They don't want to follow the Lord. They don't want to continue with him. Don't be counting your conversions. True conversion means a person has accepted and received that Christ will become the Lord of his life or is the Lord of his life. He recognizes that and he follows him. And we're going to see a little bit later as we go on in the Sermon on the Mount and other places in the book of Matthew. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice in, John, in the book of John and they follow me. This is always the case. His sheep follow him. So am I worried that I'm going to lose you if I don't do something other than preach to you? Do I need to manipulate you? No, because God never left me with the responsibility of getting results. Who saves? Who convicts? Do I do it? Or does the Holy Spirit convict people? Does Jesus save people? Folks, a tear-jerking story never saved anyone, but I promise you this, the Holy Spirit can. The Holy Spirit will. Now, all right then, we look at this. Is it, is it okay for you to come up in front of the church after this sermon today if you want? Absolutely, that's okay. Is it okay if you go to the back? Sure, that's okay. Go to the back. Is it all right for you to leave here without Christ? No. No. And if I told you yes to that one, I would be denying Jesus and the apostles and every good preacher who ever walked in their footsteps. Of course you don't want to leave here without Jesus Christ. You need to trust him. The Bible commands that we repent, that we trust Jesus Christ. And so, if the word of God's not going to convict you, Again, I don't want to be the one that's responsible. Folks, I want you to be aware that there's a difference in churches and preachers. And maybe you're thinking, well, this is the church that's way out there, and that's the preacher that's totally wacky. And I only have one response to that. Try what is said by the Word of God. Look into the Word of God and see what if I've said is true. What do the Scriptures say about it? There was a person who was interviewed by the Santa Rosa Press Democrat after she attended a service here in this area, a, a entertaining, emotional church in Santa Rosa. And she said, I really like this church because they're not too religious. <laughs> and if that's what you think, then you aren't going to be much interested in Christ's band of Christianity. If you have a true desire to worship God in spirit and truth, then you will worship him in his spirit and in his truth. You need to be careful. False prophets are out there everywhere. They are all around us. And the word of God says, by their fruits, ye shall know them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we spend in your word today. And Lord, we do depend upon your Holy Spirit to speak to hearts. Uh, we want your message to go forth. And as your word says, that it will not return to your void. Everything that we've said today will accomplish exactly what you've intended for it to do. We don't have to add anything to your word. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to manipulate people. Holy Spirit is well capable of bringing people to repentance and faith. And we trust that, Lord. We just preach the message. I ask you, Lord, that you would speak to people today, open up their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help them to see truth because you're the only one who can reveal that. Bless in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's